Today, this morning, we are joining over 600 other Unitarian Universalist congregations creating space to learn and talk about white supremacy culture and where it lives in our faith communities. For the past four years, we have been on a racial justice journey here, and today, in many ways, we are recommitting ourselves to that work, to truly uprooting the white supremacy culture that still lives in this historically segregated and historically predominantly white faith community. We welcome the youth that are with us this morning and we wanna lift up our gratitude, especially to our senior high youth group who unanimously decided to move their youth Sunday service to May 21st in order to make room for us to participate in this historic event today. Today in our service, you will hear from musicians and artists who are committed to social transformation through artistry. We're delighted to have members of the Frank Theater cast with us. We're so glad you're here, and we're delighted that Givget Sestet is with us again this morning. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. I also just want to say a bit about our worship service this morning. I don't have the right language, so I'll just fumble through it, and that is, we are living into this racial justice commitment. That means that this service most likely will have some bumps or some rubs or some moments where you feel uncomfortable and we're learning as we worship and journey together. And the truth is, the moment we're in right now doesn't call for us to be perfect. It calls for white people to dismantle the systems that support and sustain white supremacy culture and to be persistent and humble in those efforts. It's white people's work to do in accountable relationships with people of color. James Baldwin taught us this. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. In this church, there is a palpable longing for racial justice, but we are not there yet. And if our Unitarian Universalist faith is to fulfill its calling, we white UUs can't focus only on what we want our churches to be like. We need to acknowledge also and work with the reality of how they are now. This is why prophetic black leaders within our movement asked us to focus today's service on white supremacy and white supremacy culture. The phrase is provocative to many. Maybe you're glad we're saying the words out loud, or maybe you're uncomfortable or concerned or even angry that we're connecting this church with these words. But nothing can be changed until it is faced. Alex Capitan writes, and I quote, White supremacy is the water most white people swim through without even realizing they're wet. It's a basic fact of United States culture and everyday life and a foundational truth of this country, end quote. White supremacy culture, in short, then, is the idea that white people, white cultural values, white institutions are best or most normal. This idea 
This white supremacy culture shows up in textbooks that are written from the perspective of white people. It shows up as Jesus again and again and again being depicted as a white man. It shows up as the media reporting on crime differently depending on the race of the victims and the perpetrators. It shows up in countless other ways. As author Anna Kegler says, white supremacy is a system that prioritizes whiteness regardless of the presence or absence of racial hatred. But a white supremacist is a person who embraces overt racial hatred. It's like a spectrum. By default, all white people are on the spectrum of complicity in upholding a system of white supremacy, but we only give the negative label of white supremacists to the really hateful people at the far end. This allows the rest of us to say, we are not them. But seeing it this way prevents us from perceiving the insidious and ubiquitous influence of white supremacy culture, even in our own hearts. In 2017, actual white supremacists are not required in order to uphold white supremacist culture. Today is about continuing to wake up to white supremacy culture and about continuing the ongoing work of exposing it, naming it, and uprooting it. Our reading this morning is from the Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker. Uh, All of these are her words. In 1976, I began a cross-country road trip. I traveled with a friend, and we took back roads through rural western Pennsylvania. Late in the day, we came down through hill country into a valley. It had been raining hard, and as we neared a small town, we noticed blinking yellow lights warning of danger. We saw fields covered in standing water, and we passed several side roads blocked off with signs saying, road closed. Looks like they've had a flood here, we said. Coming into town, we crossed a bridge over a wide river. The water was high, muddy, moving fast. Sandbags lined the roadway. Gosh, we said, they must have had quite a bit of high water here. Looks like it was a major flood. We headed out of town, following a winding country road, captivated by the evidence all around us that there had been a dramatic flood. Then we rounded a bend. And in front of us, a sheet of water covered the roadway. The water was rising fast, like a huge silver balloon being inflated before our eyes. We stopped and started to turn the car around. The water was rising behind us. Suddenly, we realized the flood hadn't happened yesterday or last week. It was happening here and now. We hurriedly scrambled out of the car and scrambled up to higher ground, hiding taking refuge under a fir tree. No longer were we lodged in our familiar vehicle. The cold water of the storm poured down on us, baptizing us into the present, a present from which we had both been insulated from in the car and insulated from the country that we were traveling through. This is what it is like to be white in America. It is to travel well ensconced in a secure vehicle, to see signs of what is happening in the world outside the compartment one is traveling in and not realize that those signs have any contemporary meaning. It is to be dislocated, to misjudge your location and to believe you are uninvolved and unaffected 
by what is happening in the world. James Baldwin wrote, this is the crime of which I accuse my countrymen and for which I and history will never forgive them, that they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds and thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. Born white in this country, I was gradually but decisively educated into an alienated state of mind. With this narrowing, my creative capacity, she writes, my creative capacity for participation in my society was stunted, and I became compliant with social forms and patterns that failed to support the fullness of life for myself or others. To come of age in America as a white person is to be educated into ignorance. It is to be culturally shaped to not know and not want to know the actual context in which you live. Several of your fellow congregants and I have been reflecting on these questions. Where does white supremacy culture live in our church? And as we think about white supremacy, what aspects of our church culture do we hope we might examine further? We, Terry Delaney, Denise Conan, Eric Cooperstein, Susan Hoffman, Will Poulter, and I offer you our reflections this morning. White supremacy is at work in me when I believe that how I think and feel is always well-intentioned, good and right. And that when I'm challenged, I have the right to defend myself and try to control how others see me. The idea that I deserve to be assumed good, or at least benign, has been sold to me my whole life. All the heroes and presidents I grew up seeing were white. And aren't I innocent until proven guilty? We white people do not fully understand all the ways we have been falsely empowered and made comfortable at the expense of people of color. Just like the favored sibling in your family truly believes that he or she was not given special treatment, but you know they were. And if that's you, you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> White folks, we have so profoundly received special treatment that we cannot accurately measure it. Part of the special treatment is believing that if we mean well, that's enough. We have a Black Lives Matter banner, banner and we talk about racism. Isn't that enough? And aren't we better than the churches that don't? Doesn't that vindicate us you use? Here at First Universalist, it's not been a front and center topic that our paid staff and church leadership appear to be nearly all white. I believe that's white supremacy at work in me, that I haven't been more concerned about it. And I've largely been comfortable with that. So I guess what I'm saying is I know there's white supremacy here in this church because I found it right here in my own heart and mind. I'm gonna challenge it now by owning it and sitting uncomfortably with it. And I hope you'll join me. 
My friend who is black visited our church. A white person she didn't know came up to her and began talking to her about an incident where she, the white woman, was told by a person of color that her behavior was racist. After explaining the circumstances, she asked if my friend, a visitor to our church, thought it was racist. It was implied that my friend would tell the woman that this was not racist. My friend wondered if she told this woman that it wasn't racist, would this cancel out what another person of color said, or let this woman think that she wouldn't have to directly address the issue with the person of color who originally brought it up. I wonder this, would this congregant go up to a new visitor who was white and ask them to speak for their race? I challenge myself regularly to examine and make amends for the times that I have done something like this. We white people are often so fragile, defensive, and uninformed about white supremacy and how it works that we hurt people of color and we often don't even know it. I have learned that becoming more aware of how whiteness permeates my thoughts and actions and having the courage to address it address it first within myself and then directly with the person I have harmed is critical for my part in moving forward to create the beloved, the beloved community here at First Universalist. In my most nerdy years, in high school, I got involved with Model Congress, where we would debate the great issues of the day, like whether there should be a peacetime draft or whether to build more nuclear power plants. We privileged white kids were all bent on mastering Robert's rules of order, the procedural rules by which meetings are fairly and efficiently run. Fast forward a couple of decades, um, and I now serve as president of your board of trustees, and we use Robert's rules of order to run our congregational meetings. Until recently, I never questioned whether there might be other ways of conducting meetings. I mean, it's Robert's rules. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful if, if, if you get to know it. I mean, and there's a, I have a big book. I have a big book that tells me all the rules. There's commentary on the rules. It's like the Talmud. Uh, but this came up last summer after General Assembly, Lena Gardner raised on Facebook whether Robert, Robert's rules reinforced white supremacy. Does Robert's rules allow a white majority to stifle debate and discussion? Are there other ways to conduct meetings so that more voices may be heard? I don't even know what all the right questions are to ask, but it's something that I'm thinking about and I certainly don't know the answer. I know many of us have internalized the white supremacist lie that normal white families don't have problems with school or finding work or get in trouble with the law or suffer from severe mental health issues, or rely on public assistance for food and health care like my family did for some time. The culture of white supremacy divides us, telling us that 
Black and brown families are messy and messed up, and white families are not. In my role at church, I often know what's going on behind the scenes as families suffer in secret with the powerful shame and blame of white supremacy culture keeping us isolated in our time of greatest need. I wonder how would our ministry to children, youth, and families be different if we acknowledged the universality of messiness and suffering? Would we connect every young person with multiple caring adults who understood their particular struggles and supported them and their families? Would we be sure that our kids of color were equipped with spiritual tools to bolster their resilience in this toxic political climate? Would we have religious education classes for all our kids about race, racism, and whiteness, as we do, but also opportunities just for kids of color where they could breathe and talk without concern for how their white peers would react? Would we take youth into the world to witness the ravages of oppression and reach across the cultural divide, not just in Nicaragua, but also in North Minneapolis, and even right here in this church? I left my first racial justice training group pod after a few months because I thought I wouldn't have any credibility as a trainer if I wasn't as polished and as knowledgeable about race, racism, and white supremacy as the professional hired to train me. I told myself and my fellow small group trainers that I would need months of dedicated practice and rehearsal to reach a skill level high enough to have the right impact as a trainer. I needed to know everything in order to say anything. Curiosity or self-discovery or a chance to become closer to my fellow trainers was sacrificed to the idea that I had to be an expert and that we had to have an expert team. Fear of not knowing all the answers is a debilitating aspect of supremacy. It compelled me to judge my fellow trainer's level of commitment as not meeting my needs. It undervalued being a part of creating shared insights between us and amongst us, and kept the be the best, go big, or go home narrative going inside my head. It was about me being defended and, in, and afraid to really engage and to grow. White supremacy hides in plain sight for me as perfectionism and being defended to be persistently blameless better informed, right, airtight, flawless in my delivery, and impenetrable in my response to messiness, to rage, to history, to pain. I was raised to never be that white guy. All my life, my parents taught me to value the life in every human, no matter who they were. Despite this, I grew up knowing the ugly side of whiteness. 
In my earliest days, back in my parents' hometown of Baton Rouge, I would roam the ruins of an old plantation, going inside the hot, stuffy wooden buildings that housed enslaved people, away from the pristine yellow walls of the planters' homes. My parents sent me to Jewish preschool where some of my earliest memories were learning why the old men and women had purple numbers on their arms. Later, they enrolled me in a Spanish immersion school where my teachers would explain to the side of the United States that my grandfather wouldn't. When visiting extended family who would loudly proclaim, this is America, speak English, my parents taught me that I was never more important because of my blonde hair, blue eyes, or mother tongue. My parents did the best they could, but in the end, there is no that white guy because inside every white person, there persists the vicious cancer of racism. The first step in defeating white supremacy is simple, but perhaps the hardest. Admitting that white supremacy is pervasive and that not a single white person can do anything to escape it. There are no those white people. There are only white people. And that means that we have work to do, period.